Hi gang. I'm guessing you all agree that a piece that starts with a citation to Huckleberry Finn and has a cool analogy goes down a lot, a lot easier than the Hofeld piece did. I'm guessing this is probably easier to read for you guys, and I, I'm curious about whether you felt you learned more from it or not. So this is Roscoe Pound's famous piece, Law and Books and Law in Action, from 1910, around the same time, a little bit, just a few years before Hofeld's piece was published, and again, coming a little more than a decade after Oliver Wendell Holmes' Path of the Law. Okay, so what is this piece about? This is a good overarching introduction to the idea of sociological jurisprudence, uh, the movement with which Roscoe Pound is most identified. And, you know, in a nutshell, the idea is that to know what the law is, we need to see law's effect on real people. We need to see law's effect on society, how society shapes the law and how law shapes society. Well, I, I don't think you need me necessarily to tell you the what this work tries to describe in principle, at least in large principle. And that's, I guess you could sum it up by just saying, we say one thing and do another. We say that you have the right to silence if you're picked up by the police. We say that you have an equal vote in elections. We say all kinds of things in the law that Roscoe Pound and, and others suggest isn't actually true as a description of what's actually going on in society. So I actually found the Huck Fenn analogy at the beginning to be a pretty cool way to start. And I'm curious whether you guys found that too, whether you found it to resonate with you. This idea that there's this person who feels like there's just a way that this ought to be done. There's an orthodoxy about it. And the orthodoxy is so important, so important, that we can't admit when we depart from it. We have to pretend as though we're still upholding it. Do you feel like this is a little bit like Judge Truepenny from our very first reading? He's the one who, after all, said, hey, we've got to uphold this statute, the words of this statute, but don't worry, the chief executive is going to do the right thing, and, and that's the best way of proceeding, because then we can uphold the letter and spirit of the law and still achieve justice, even though if we actually carried out the law here, it would be totally unjust. So he's kind of having his cake and eating it, too seems very much like saying that the legal system should use the pickaxe, but call it a penknife. In general with this piece, we see another answer to the basic question that so many of the pieces we'll read try to answer in various ways. And, and I would argue to you, that, to you that we answer all the time when we do our work in the law, and that is, what is the law? What does it mean to practice the law? Pound says that it's what we actually do. It's what the law actually does, as felt and experienced by law's objects, the people subject to it, the people who live under it. Now, if that's the case, then legal fictions look even more ridiculous than they might otherwise. And he gives some great example of, of fictions in the past, uh, Roman law, the rise of wills, uh, where they were not allowed before, but came to stand in and kind of regulate a practice that had risen up of transferring your property to someone you trust who will then do what you say. Uh, so if you can't leave your property in a will except to your oldest son, you might try to find a way around that by transferring your property before you die to someone else who is instructed and whom you trust will transfer it and deal with it as you wish upon your death. And eventually the law changes to make these oral promises enforceable, to, to charge them with carrying these out. And essentially you have wills, but 
through this fictional device. And what Pound tells us is that these legal fictions mark places where law's action in society and the theory on the books, the law as written in statutes or opinions, had become far apart, so stretched that there was a feeling that law needed to be brought back into accord with practice. And the fiction is a device that's kind of like dissipates this energy which had been built up by the separation of law's practice or, or law's action from the letter of the law. But that's the past. The fact that there's a fiction that dissipates that energy tells you that kind of the problem of the separation of practice and, and theory ha- has been solved. So, so fictions are kind of like fossils. They're evidence of some past divergence between society and its law. So how do we recognize that divergence today? And what are its causes? What causes law's action to become so divorced from law's theory and law's letters? Well, Pound points to some contemporary examples where he says the law says one thing and yet we do another. He gives an example of the supposed rule of deference to congressional enactments or legislative enactments, the presumption in favor of upholding legislation and says, look, they're striking down statutes left and right all over the place. And so so here again, we're seeing a writer of this era railing against the kind of conservative courts striking down progressive legislation, a hallmark of this era and a hallmark of the legal realists. I mean, this is one of the main efforts of the legal realists is to kind of combat the idea that the court is doing something neutral when it strikes down wage and hour laws and progressive legislation. So this piece is no different in that regard. We also see this uh, passage about the supposed immunity from coercive, combative police interrogations. And in fact, this only applies to the wealthy. Prosecutors use the pickaxe, he says, even though the books specify that they use a case knife. He also points to jury nullification. And maybe this is a, a broader point that that juries are a way of dissipating this energy that builds up when the law and the books departs from the law in action. I mean, do you think that's legitimate, that they are vehicles for adjusting theory, the law of the judges, to the law that the people want, to the law that they demand, uh, without having to change the theory? And this is a very kind of, again, a kind of true penny type approach. And if juries are given the power to use discretion – and, and the books specify this, then is this really lawless? I'm kind of asking a little bit about jury nullification here and what it says about the law. What is the law when juries can nullify it and when they can apply their discretion in ways which are maybe not quite nullification but amend the law in some real sense? I mean, is, is the problem that the books obscure the real law because of the jury's powers or, or is it they explicitly give too much discretion to an institution likely not to follow the rest of the book's instructions. I'm trying to figure out here uh, what the objection is to jury nullification, whether it's a problem or not, and and how it fits in with the rest of the theory here. Uh, Okay, another example he gives is uh, prescriptive easements, adverse possession. Maybe some of you have had property Many of you might not have, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter because the issue it could work with any issue. If you look at the cases, the, the rules are very precise and they seem to say this or they seem to say that. You have to show this. You know, in this case, it's, you have to show that you know, it's adverse, it's without permission. And yet if you go through and you look at all the cases, what is characterized as meeting those standards 
is kind of hard to justify on those standards alone. What it looks like is happening is the cases which seem more justly brought or, or where justice favors the plaintiff, the judges tend to go for the plaintiff, and where justice more broadly conceived favors the defendant, they seem to favor the defendant, where, you know, legally, the the rules say what they say, and the judge is supposed to be looking to see, or the jury, depending on who gets the question, is supposed to be looking to see whether those standards are met. As Pound writes, legally, the judge's heart and conscience are eliminated. In practice, flesh and blood will not bow to such a theory. The face of the law may be saved by an elaborate ritual, but men and not rules will administer justice. Okay, now I'm wondering how true this all strikes you. Have you seen this either in summer jobs or or in reading the law or in another class? Why do you think it occurs at all? I mean, there's one thought is that if people don't like the law, if it doesn't work very well, people will react against it. They'll pass new statutes. They will... uh, put pressure on the judiciary. Uh, There's even a school of thought that says that the common law is efficient. It basically is correct. And one of the reasons that it is correct or efficient, according to this theory, is that bad rules get litigated a lot because they're bad. And over time, even if a judge isn't even aware of this fact, we'll land on the efficient rule. And once we land on an efficient rule, we'll be litigated less. So there's, there's some ideas that these kind of anachronisms shouldn't last. Like, why do they last? Pound has some thoughts on what the causes of these divergences can be. The general claim is that legal systems go through periods of change and stability. And when they're changing a lot, they tend to react to what people want and to society around them. When they don't change so much and they're in a period of stability, the legal system responds more slowly to social changes. If there is going to be change, it's likely to come if there's some friction between the people and what judges are doing. Change is likely to come in the form of legislation. But legislation can suffer from some of the same defects as judge-made law. It can be overly formal, attempt to be too comprehensive, to lay down too strict a rule, to have too much detail, and basically not leave enough room for the kind of individualized justice that we demonstrably need he claims, that that is made clear by nullifying juries or by other indications of the drift. Okay, now Pound's targets in this piece are two targets we've seen before, the kind of law of nature and law as history. And he sees kind of the same sense in each, that they embed some axioms of hyper-individualism and the perfection of legal machinery, where perfection is meant negatively as the development of too many mechanical rules and, the, and a kind of pretension toward uh, perfection. In this regard, do you think you can identify the analogy that he makes with the development of science, the move from philosophy to science, at least over scientific inquiries, and how jurisprudence has failed to make that jump. What has jurisprudence failed to do that other sciences have done? What does he say about that? The other thing that I want you to think about is he, he anticipates a kind of criticism of his identification of these two axioms, the axioms of hyper-individualism and the perfection of legal machinery with, with too many mechanical rules, as possibly intention. So, you know, how how could a staunch individualist want a government with persnickety, exacting, pre-existing rules. 
seems like a tension, right? What does he say about that? Go back and check that out and, and let me know uh, in our discussion whether you agree with him on that. He, he thinks that actually they work well together. Okay, I want to mention something that he raises, Austin's command theory or imperative theory. And, and this is a theory that identifies law with the commands of a sovereign backed by threats. So what is the law? It's the commands of the sovereign backed by threats. And in England, this appears a pretty apt description where the law is kind of what the parliament does. His criticism is that in America, when the legislature acts, it's not yet finished. That's not yet the law because the courts are in the business routinely of striking down legislation. And so what is the law? It's what courts do uh, in the common law, and it is what legislatures do insofar as it is later approved by courts, or at least not disapproved. And so our theory is the theory by which courts approve such things. And it is not the imperative theory, he says. It is the, uh, the theory of the historical school, which he says is very similar to the natural law school. In fact, he says at one point that the historical method is basically natural law on historical premises, letting old law settle new cases, discovering what the law is, not recognizing that you're making it, but discovering what it is through a search through materials. In this case, instead of morals or natural principles, uh, old cases. And the result is predictably a gulf between social justice and legal justice, he says. Uh, One thing I wanted to ask you about is just, do you agree with him about the effect of these historical sources on the United States? Where does he say that this conservative or individual influence comes from in American law. Well, I think like Holmes, Pound wants a more scientifically driven, contemporaneously driven policy toward, say, criminality, for example. You know, it's not that he thinks that history is, is useless, but he does say, and this is absolutely key on page 34, the history of juristic thought tells us nothing unless we know the social forces that lay behind it. Okay, so I'm going to leave you with just a couple questions. And they deal with kind of the positive project. What are we to take from this, uh, If other than kind of tearing down the wrong ways of doing things? What would be a way of, of doing the law that is consistent with Pound's perspective? So in particular, with legislation, he actually says something very direct about how he would like to see legislation change. Can you identify that and can you think about what he prescribes and whether our way of doing things matches with it or not? And finally, look at the final paragraph, which is an appropriate finally, page 35 to 36 of the work. And just, you know, this is a kind of a summative paragraph urging us not to become legal monks. I just want you to ask yourself whether you agree with this. Because you may not. I mean, I, I, I really want you to reflect on this and, and think about what he's saying. And then I also want you to think about how you would operationalize some of these ideas. What are a couple of reforms that you would introduce or you think have been introduced since this time that have helped with this problem that he identifies if you indeed you think it is a problem? All right. I think that's enough for now, especially with the long Hofeld episode this week. And we'll have much more to talk about when we get together on both pieces, um, maybe this one in particular. But I look very much forward to it, and I will see you soon.